Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Today we're talking about a very familiar passage of Scripture, which many of you learned when you were three or four or five years of age in Sunday school, and that's the lion's den. A couple of writers talked about this. David Grossman, Australia's GPS was off because the whole country moved. Popular Mechanics, 2016. Chris Fox, Australia plans new coordinates to fix sat-nav gap by BBC. The continent, country, continent of Australia is actually moving. It's moving every year. It isn't really surprising, all the continents move a little bit, but Australia drifts 70 millimeters to the northeast every year. Australia was once connected to both India and Antarctica, finally breaking away from the former, uh, according to this article, 100 million years ago and the latter 45 million years ago. I wasn't there, a couple of you may have been. The continent still drifts away at a rate far too slow for humans to notice. And this didn't used to matter, but it does now. It's starting to mess with systems that rely on pinpoint accuracy or GPS. Australian GPS was last updated in 1994, and the entire country has moved a little bit more than five feet since then. Much of our current technology relies on accurate GPS coordinates. Driverless tractors that help with farm work will start having problems because the information about the farm isn't going to line up with the coordinates coming out of the nav system. There are going to be problems. For Australians using driverless cars or shipping drones, accurate map information is fundamental. You might not want to get a self-driving Tesla right now in Australia. You will be in the ditch. Everything on earth changes, including the continents. But for believers, for followers of God, there are three things that we believe never change. God doesn't change. His word, which is an accurate reflection of God, doesn't change. God's promises don't change. I like that. And I believe it. Change can actually be good. A lot of change is good. Change can mean progress. Change can mean advancement. Change can be extremely helpful. But change can also undermine what has been accepted as normative. Change can undermine what is stable, what is consistent. And if you believe the Bible is an accurate reflection of God and history with God, change can also threaten what we believe is true. God doesn't change. His character is timeless and eternal. His expectations were originally written in stone to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. They were not the ten suggestions. Moses had no erasers. There's a reason he put them in stone. Nobody, I want you to think about this, because of what is going on right now in the world of religion, Nobody in my mind would follow any religion or any God if that religion and or that God did an official rewrite every 50 years. And yet that's what's going on in the world today. 
Why would we follow a religion? Why would we believe in a God if every 50 years it changes so much? How could there be any certainty about that? We would recognize immediately that no true God would do that. We would conclude immediately that a religion that evolves must be no more than a religion of our own making. Because truth, if there is absolute truth, doesn't evolve. That religion would bring no certainty, no comfort, no solace to anybody. So if God doesn't change, and his word doesn't change, and his promises don't change, and his expectations of us don't change, then the safest place for any of us to be is doing exactly what God wants us to be doing, no matter what the consequences. Even if God puts you in a den of lions, or in a cave, with a pride of hungry lions. And that's exactly what happened to Daniel. Daniel chapter six is the beginning of a fascinating story. It's on page 634. If you don't have a Bible with you, just grab one in front of you out of the pew there. Page 634. Actually, we're gonna back up to page 633. Page 633 at the bottom. And this is the beginning of this story. I'm gonna read the first part, and then we'll walk through the rest of the story in a few moments. Page 633, Daniel chapter six. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Well, then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners, satraps, came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, now this is a lie, all the commissioners of the kingdom and prefects and satraps, the high officials and the governors, have consulted together that the king should establish a statute, a law, and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den, evidently a preferred method of execution, much more exciting than a simple beheading. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians. Now keep that in mind. Say it. Write it down so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians. They had some interesting cultural issues in their legal culture, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. We're going to look at four simple points here and then a few applications. First, the lion's den begins or began with a lifetime of faithful service and then some. Daniel believed God never changes. 
Israel had been conquered, the nation of Israel had been conquered in two stages before this ever takes place. In 722, the Assyrians had invaded Israel, northern Israel, they'd taken over the 10 tribes to the north. In around 600, both before and after 600, the Babylonians had been invading southern Israel, which we call Judah. Two tribes uh, were there, and, and over a period of maybe 15 years, they, had, they had, uh, had several military campaigns, and around 600 BC, some say 586 is when it ended, southern Israel was taken. Daniel had been deported uh, during part of that southern siege. So Israel was conquered. They no longer, uh, they might have occupied the promised land to some degree. Many were deported, but they had no control over their own destiny. And if you're in any ancient culture and you connect your religion to your military might, which all cultures did, it looked like the logical conclusion was the God of Israel had lost. It looked like it was time to start shopping for a new God. But Daniel didn't buy into that. He believed in a bigger God. He believed that the God of Israel went on the road. And he was right. In Daniel chapter 1, you see how God extends his arm wherever the people of Israel went. And in Daniel chapter 1, there was a miraculous intervention when Daniel and his buddies decided to you know, go on this special diet. They wouldn't eat the king's uh, food and wine that was offered to idols. And so they said, you know, just give us veggies. I think that was a terrible decision personally, just give us veggies. But nonetheless... He was doing it to honor his God. And so he went on, you know, this, this sort of vegetarian diet for a period of time. And his, he and his friends looked better than anyone else, and that was miraculous. Daniel chapter 2. There was a miraculous intervention as Daniel had the ability to interpret a dream from the king. Daniel chapter 3, there's a miraculous intervention as Shadrach, Meshach, and Tebed we go. We're all... Remember, that's how you remember it, right? From Sunday school, Shadrach, Meshach, and Tibet we go. All right, never mind. All right. As the three of them decided they wouldn't bow down to this idol that had been created, and they're thrown in a fiery furnace, and none of them die. And an angel appears with them. Again, a miracle. God goes on the road. Daniel chapter 4, there's this another vision to Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel interprets. And also you see God's intervention as he, he sort of strikes Nebuchadnezzar with a, actually a psychological malady, which does exist in the world, where he thought he was a bovine for about a number of years, a cow. Daniel chapter 5, the handwriting on the wall where there's this miracle, and again, Daniel interprets it. Daniel affirmed over and over and over that God goes on the road. His away record is awesome. And Daniel chapter six is gonna be more of the same. But Daniel never had to get in this situation. And that's what I wanna point out at first here. The lion's den begins with a lifetime of faithful service. He gets stuck in a lion's den, but it was completely avoidable. This was his choice. He could have compromised just a bit, and I would argue not even a lot, and he keeps getting himself in these situations because he's so committed to obeying God. Now, how is this avoidable? And why is Daniel so stubbornly obedient? Well, a long time ago, as soon as Daniel was deported, and probably before that, he determined that the safest place to be 
would be in God's will, doing exactly what God wanted him to do, to be obedient regardless of the consequences. And he determined when he was shipped over to Babylon with, I believe, about 10,000 of the young up-and-coming rulers in Judea, he determined that God would go on the road, that geography didn't matter, that a sovereign God would be watching his life for every moment. The circumstances don't matter. And here's why I want to bring this up. And this is not the main point of chapter 6. But here's why I want to bring this up. You know, you see some pictures when you're in Sunday school and you're five or six years old and you hear this story about how Daniel's in the lion's den and, and you see him there and, you know, he's got kind of some long, wavy hair and no bald spot, no gray. He's not going to the shaved head look. Those are inaccurate pictures. Daniel is 83 in this story. I want you to think about that. He's 83. There are enough historical references to be very precise about his age. This is not a teenage Daniel who's learning that God is faithful. This is an old man who has been faithful for a lifetime. He's not backing off now. He's not retiring from God like I've put my time in. Now it's time just to relax. He's finishing well at 83. Now, I know those of you who are 83 think that's not that old. I know that. You're thinking 90s old. You're old if you're 83. If you're a dude, if you're a dude and you're 83, you're old. <laughs> Keep that thought in mind. Not what he said, whoever that was. Second, the lion's den happens when we're forced to choose between God and the world's philosophy. This event actually arises from jealousy and, and envy. There's a conspiracy that's put forth particularly to trap Daniel. It's not about everyone worshiping or praying to the new king. This conspiracy is all about catching Daniel. A new kingdom has just been installed, and we talked about this last week. Medo-Persia has just taken Babylonia as they just took the capital, Babylon. So right before this chapter, we ended last week with this story, Babylon, the capital, was under siege. It was extremely well fortified. Walls were high. Gates were well manned and well constructed. And so under this siege, of the Medo-Persians, the king, Belshazzar, was holding a feast in the palace. It was sort of a, a rah-rah feast. You know, the army's outside, but we're gonna sort of eat, drink, and be merry in here because we're safe. So he's holding a feast. And in order to mock Israel's God, because Grandpa Nebuchadnezzar had really uh, paid deference to Daniel's God, and Belshazzar didn't share those feelings. In order to mock Israel's God, he brought the temple artifacts. It's sort of like he brought the communion table and you know those trays we use and everything, and he decided to take the artifacts from Israel's temple that could be used to drink from and so on, religious artifacts, and they would use them during their meal, which was great, uh, for the most part, a, a great palace orgy. God was not amused. 
And so a hand appeared during this banquet slash orgy and wrote on the wall a few words. Nobody could interpret that message. The queen mother comes in and she says, well, there was a man who was actually a captive from, from Judah a long time ago, and he used to work with your grandpa when he couldn't figure things out, so call him. So they go get a retired Daniel, and they bring him into the palace, and Daniel tells them basically what the handwriting of the wall said. Basically, it said this. You know, God sees what you're doing. You've been weighed and measured. You come up short, and pretty quickly you're going to be dead, and the kingdom's been given to somebody else. Daniel, who served the God that was being mocked, interpreted the message. It was a message of judgment. And that very night, and this isn't just in the Bible. You can read the Nabonidus Chronicle. Uh, you can read uh, another ancient document about this. This isn't just in the Bible. The Bible's history matches secular history because the Bible's history is very accurate. During that night, the Persian army, the Medo-Persian army, who had been working on this civil engineering project probably for a summer, during that night they diverted the Euphrates River into an ancient riverbed, much of it anyway, so it would go around the city, not go under the city wall. The city was incredibly well fortified, but nobody thought you would swim under the wall to get in. So they were able to walk in, thigh deep in water, as an army, undetected, and they took the city in the middle of the night during this banquet. There was virtually no battle, very little bloodshed. And there was a transition in kingdoms. Darius, the new king, now that's likely a title, not a name, we're not sure. He set up 120 leaders, administrators over his, I think not his whole kingdom, I think they're just talking about this new territory, this new kingdom territory that he's just conquered. He appointed three leaders of the 120. Daniel's one of the three, and he's doing so well that everyone recognizes he's about to become prime minister. He's going to be the leader in this kingdom. And there was some racism going on here. The Medo-Persian sort of clan didn't feel like this, you know, this Jew should be number two in the kingdom. Likely Darius had heard about Daniel's interpretation of the dream, the dream that said Darius was going to take over that night. He knew Daniel had some pretty special powers, if you will. It's probably one of the reasons Daniel was immediately elevated, but it didn't take long, and they recognized, no, I can trust this guy. There's no corruption in him. He's a good dude. He's honest. He, you know, he worships another god, but so what? So does everybody else I'm conquering? So he's ready to give him a promotion, prime minister. Actually, Darius was somewhat generous with the Jewish nation uh, generally because he is one of the kings that allowed them to return to Israel. But this mostly Persian government was not happy with a Jewish PM. So they created a conspiracy. They thought, well, Daniel's too faithful to the king to find any corruption in him. He just He's just not swayed by power. He's just a good guy. He's like the ideal politician, which seems to us to be an oxymoron. He was too faithful to God to find moral or ethical scandal. He was a good guy, and he was a good politician. And so they have to come up with this conspiracy. So they're thinking, okay, new government, equals new gods, which equals a new source of spiritual blessing. 
So let's go to the king and let's tell him that we want to we wanna develop loyalty towards you in this new territory that you've conquered. We want to break people's loyalty to their gods. So how about if for 30 days we want everyone to only petition you as a new king for all matters in their lives. They're not supposed to pray to their gods. They've got to pray to you, Darius. Well, I mean, if you're a leader and somebody comes to you and said, everyone's got to pray to you for 30 days, I mean, you've got to admit, you know, there's a little narcissism in everyone. That feels pretty good. So Darius went along with it. And they had made it sound like everyone agreed on this, including Daniel. They lied to him. They set up the king, which he eventually realizes. Well, Daniel had daily prayers. Several times a day, he he would actually open his windows and sort of pray towards Jerusalem. And everyone knew this. You know, you walk by Daniel's house, so there he is, multiple times a day, he's praying towards Jerusalem. These daily prayers, they were very systematic, were now illegal. For 30 days. I mean, you know, just think about it, though. You're in Daniel's shoes, all right? All you have to do is stop praying for 30 days. Or just close your windows and do it privately, all right? I mean, a lot of us would love that idea. You know, we're in the restaurant. You know, we don't want to really pray out loud because people might see us. You sort of drop the fork. Thank you for this food, Jesus. Amen. I mean, come on. Now, I also don't think you should be louder than you normally are just to make a point, okay? But he could have simply closed his windows, prayed privately, but Daniel changed nothing. Could have made this work. He didn't even have to pray to Darius. He just couldn't pray to any other god but Darius. He just had to set aside sort of his loyalties for 30 days. And not even set aside his loyalties. Just shut up. Don't pray. But Daniel changed nothing. Because nobody was going to keep Daniel from his loyalty to God. And so, of course, he was immediately caught. The king knew that he was duped because these individuals, these other leaders, came back to the king and told him, you know, there's this Jewish guy who, you know, doesn't... He seems stuck on this God of Israel thing. Unfortunately, the king was trapped because Medo-Persian legal culture had him trapped. Once a law was spoken, once a law was spoken, it outranked the king himself. If the king said something, he couldn't retract it. Once the law was spoken, he as a person did not outrank what he had just said. It was irreversible. So Daniel is headed to an old-fashioned execution chamber, which in their case is because they had some imagination, which was a den of lions. So when they, they approached and spoke before the king, verse 12, about the king's injunction, this is what they said. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the den of lions? The king replied, the statement is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. 
Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. As soon as the king heard this, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And he's trying to get out of this. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. You'll find out later he didn't sleep that night. This king had a great respect for Daniel. And he had no problem with Daniel serving another god. He talks about it. He had been trapped. The lion's den happens when we're forced to choose between God and the world. The world in the New Testament particularly is usually the word cosmos, sort of the arrangement of things. And what it typically means is sort of the, the philosophical system of this world in opposition to God and his reign in our lives and in this world. Well, that's where we're always tripped up as Christians. The world around us, Romans 12, too. Don't be conformed to this world. The idea is don't be pressed into its mold. That's always the rub for us. It's, it's always where it is. It'd be really easy to follow God if there weren't all these pressures around us to sort of twist our lives to fit in. And once something is well accepted in the culture around us, and the culture's changed, I mean, for those of you who are under 30, under 40, I mean, you just don't live in the same world that people who are over 40, like myself, 41, live in. You just don't live in the same world philosophically. I mean, when I was growing up, right after the Civil War, the reality is that the government and the school systems and, and sort of in, in both the U.S. and Canada, they, they wouldn't, in fact, you see it because so many of your schools are actually paid for with tax dollars or Catholic schools, that the, the, the government, the, the systems around us would not violate the family's view of reality. There was a Judeo-Christian sort of ethos that permeated Western society. Europe, North America. But that's, that's not the world we live in anymore. Now the world is hostile to that. And once something is well accepted in the culture around you, in the world around you, you are a flat earther if you don't accept the culture's view. That's the world you live in. You believe What? Did you ever have a science class? You know, are you stupid? No, actually we're not. In fact, if you do studies on people who are scientists in the world, about the same percentage of them are Christians as the rest of the population. Smart people believe this book. There's no difference in educational values who believes this book. Once something is well accepted in the culture, you're a flat earther if you don't accept the culture's view our view of life's purpose, our view of truth, our view of the path to heaven, our view of right and wrong, our view of human sexuality, our view of pornography and what's wrong with certain things in the world, our view of money and how it should be used, our view of marriage and who that really involves, our view of creation and origins, our view of human history, our view of how we ended up with a broken world, what sin has done in our lives and in our world, our view that there is absolute truth, there is exclusive absolute truth. And, and when you start reflecting that in a culture that's moved far away from where it was 40 or 50 years ago, People look at you like, you can't really believe that, can you? Well, Daniel stands as a timeless example 
just do the right thing, just believe the right thing, and no matter what comes your way, don't compromise, period. I mean, that's, Daniel's a rock. I love this guy. And God responded. Point number three, God is always in the lion's den with the faithful. You know, Jesus actually promised that if you follow him, there's a good chance you might lose your head over it or get boiled in oil or whatever the common you know, practice of the day is. He said, if you, you, know, if you follow me, you're going to be tortured. You're going to be you know, thrown into jail. You're going to be kicked out of the synagogues. And, and when that happens, he says, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. In other words, when you are persecuted for my sake, when you carry your cross just like I carried my cross, which was a metaphor for execution, I'm with you. The Spirit of God will give you the words to say. When Jesus left the earth in Matthew 28, he says, Lo, I am with you. He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. By the way, I'm leaving, but all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God's presence is with us, even in the lion's den. So Daniel's brought to the lion's den. I imagine it was an old well or cistern which was hollowed out. I'm not sure, but it seems like it, you dropped into it. They didn't open a door and let you walk in. You dropped into it. Maybe it was a cave. Sometimes you'll see a cave structure where you still have to crawl up uh, to get out at the top. But it was a cave of some sort, and there was a stone that was sort of uh, pushed over the top of it to keep the lions contained. And this was an execution chamber, and you know, much more entertaining than some of the other options. Can you imagine Daniel's heart rate? And at 83, it's dangerous when your heart goes up like this. He's escorted to his execution. He has experienced the miraculous in all these other stories. God has always been with him, and God is always with us, but he doesn't always promise deliverance. Just because he's with us doesn't mean it's always going to turn out okay. Presence is not deliverance. God's promise to be with us is not a guarantee that God's going to sort of come through in the way we would want him to. Jesus makes that very clear. Didn't work out really well for him, and he said, if it doesn't work out well for the master, it's not going to work out well for the servant. In Daniel's case, lions don't like 83-year-old old doombeat, you know? They didn't like old dude. That, that's great. No, in Daniel's case... God came through. He miraculously protected Daniel. And, and Daniel's in here, you know, it's at sunset that he's thrown in. And the king doesn't want to do it. He's talking to him all the way. You know, he's unhappy about it. You know, may your God protect you. May the God you serve protect you. He said things like that to Daniel. Darius loved this guy. He knew he'd been duped. Drops him in on sunset doesn't sleep, gets up at sunrise to go visit the, the cave. But over those maybe seven or eight hours where Daniel's in the lion's den, oh, I would love to have been in the, well, maybe I wouldn't have loved to have been in the corner. You know, you, can you imagine, Daniel get comfortable in there? You know, once he realized God's presence was going to protect him and he's like, you know, hey, can you move over there, buddy? 
All right, can I, can I put my head here? Is that okay? Did you pet them? Are they growling? Are they purring? Did you tell some cat jokes and say this would apply? But anyway. At dawn, the king rushes to the pit. And he calls out to Daniel. This is great. This is a pagan king. He calls out to Daniel and he said, uh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lions? This is a pagan king. And he writes this in Aramaic, sends it to his whole kingdom, by the way, after the fact. Daniel spoke to the king. O king, live forever. You're looking good this morning. No, he doesn't say that. May God send, or my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they've not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, and also towards you, O king, I have committed no crime. The king was very pleased. He gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. <laughs> and then he gave orders to take all the conspirators who had come up with this and their families and drop them in the same den and basically it says they didn't even hit the ground before they were dead from this group of lions. So the lions were hungry. Fourth, the lion's den results in an elevation of God and his cause. Now, I, I love the historical nature of Daniel. The fact that this is a part of the Bible that is written in Aramaic, like from chapter two to about chapter seven or part of chapter seven, it's written in Aramaic. So this, a vast empire read this. This wasn't their Bible because they didn't believe in the true God. The, the, you know, the Medo-Persians didn't believe in the true God just like the Babylonians didn't in general. But a vast empire received this account in Aramaic. And it was, this was an ancient decree for their kingdom. This isn't written to Israel. This is written to the Medo-Persian Empire. Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So Darius writes a part of the Bible, sends it to his kingdom, which then becomes part of our Bible as historical record. And he said in Aramaic to everyone in Medo-Persia, we need to respect Daniel's God. He's like a true God. He does real stuff, miracles. That's awesome. But if Daniel never takes that stand, which puts him in the lion's den, God is never made famous by it. If he just goes along to get along, this never happens. And God has never made famous in a whole nation. See, that hasn't changed. If we just fit in, just shut up, just go along to get along, never let people know what we believe, 
God will never be famous. Just a few apps here. First, Daniel is a lesson in finishing well. I said that earlier. He's 83. I just love that about this story. You know, it's hard to stay faithful and to follow God for a lifetime. Consider this mission statement of a well-known university. This is, so this is a famous university. To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end or purpose of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. Founded in 1636, this university employed exclusively Christian professors, emphasized character formation in its students above everything, and placed a strong emphasis on equipping ministers, pastors to share the good news. Every diploma from this university read, Christo et Exlesia, around veritas, meaning truth for Christ and the church. You've probably heard of this school. It's called Harvard. Harvard was a minister training school. Every professor had to be a believer. Over 80 years after its founding, a group of New England pastors sensed Harvard had drifted too far for their liking. Concerned by the secularization at Harvard, they approached a wealthy philanthropist who shared their concerns. You know, Harvard's kind of fallen off the map a little bit, so this man named Elihu Yale financed their efforts in 1718. They called the college Yale University. So Harvard's gotten too liberal in the 1700s, so we're going to found Yale. Yale's motto was not just veritas or truth like Harvard, but lux et veritas, light and truth. Today, Harvard and Yale's legacy of academic excellence are still intact, but neither school resembles what their founders envisioned. At the 350th anniversary celebration, Stephen Muller, former president of Johns Hopkins University, said this, the bad news is the university has become godless. Larry Summers, the former president of Harvard, confessed things divine have been central neither to my professional nor to my personal life. Yale and Harvard existed to train pastors. When you're looking at organizations, we call that, there's two words, mission drift. You know, drifted away from the whole purpose originally. You know, it happens, happens to us as well. It's hard to just stay faithful to this book. And it's especially hard to do it when you're 17, 27, 37, 67, 77. And sometimes in life you face some disappointments, some doubts. Sometimes it's just theological beliefs Sometimes we might still believe the right things, but we sort of get to an older age and we're like, you know what? I've put in my time. God knows what I believe. I don't need to stay engaged. I don't need to serve. It's like, I did that. Now I'm just going to have a good time. I'm going to vacation a little bit more. So sometimes it's just a feeling we put in our time. I love it that an 83-year-old Daniel is with the big cats in a den. There's no retiring from your faith. It never gets put on hold. You never stop using your gifts. You never stop caring about God's kingdom. Daniel's a lesson in finishing well. Second, Daniel's a lesson in a consistent and obedient life. 
I mean, think about the story we read. The whole plot against Daniel is hatched because his jealous co-workers can't find any true accusation against him. Think about that. So let's say somebody wants to get you in trouble. How hard is it going to be? All right? They want to get me in trouble? They don't, they don't have to look as hard as they did for Daniel. What a testimony. What a testimony. We can't find any corruption in him as it relates to the government, and he's so stinking ethical and moral because of this God thing he's got going on, we're going to have to trick him. Wow, what a testimony. What a life. He ended up in a lion's den, not because he's committed a capital crime. He ended up in a lion's den because he wouldn't stop praying to God with an open window for 30 days. Could have gone silent. Could have said to God, see you in 30. Let's take a break. You'll be okay, I'll be okay. Didn't do it. Could have just closed his windows. Let's just take this thing private. It's getting a little hot around me in this world. People think I'm weird because I believe in God. Could have done that. He didn't. Nothing rattled Daniel. Nothing moved him. Not threats, not geography, not changes in kings and kingdoms. Daniel was a servant of God and you could not move him an inch from his commitments. What does it take to take you and me off the path? Third, finally, Daniel's deliverance illustrates the safest place on earth is in the lion's den. Now, obviously, I'm exaggerating to make a point here. Safest place on earth is in the lion's den, if that's where you're supposed to be. Well, we're, we haven't talked about COVID for a while, so no sermon is complete without a COVID illustration. That was funny. Help me out here. All right. In October 2019, Bert Turhart boarded a 40-foot ocean-faring sailboat and set sail from Victoria, British Columbia. His objective was to become the first North American to ever circumnavigate the globe solo, using only a sextant, pen, paper, and almanac for navigation. On July 28, 2020, after 267 days at sea, he sailed back into Victoria, having accomplished his goal. He went around the world. While on the open seas, he faced extreme weather, 12 to 14-foot ocean swells on a regular basis, unforeseen ship repairs, and severe sleep deprivation. But in spite of these dangers, he was dubbed the safest man on earth. When Turhart set sail, we had never heard of COVID-19 or words like social distancing or flatten the curve, shelter in place, or self-quarantine. While he was on the open ocean, Turhart was safe from all of it. Well, I don't know about that. It's an interesting story. Lucky guy, though, he missed all the COVID debate early on. But the safest place on earth is not avoiding the latest pandemic. The safest place on earth is in the lion's den if you got there by obeying God. That's the safest place on earth, is to be doing exactly what God wants you to do every day of your life, no matter the consequence. If it costs you your reputation, still the safest place. If it costs you your popularity, still the safest place. If it costs you your life, still the safest place in the long run, in the light of eternity. And to that end, Daniel is an awesome example. 
So God, we, we thank you for your word. I, I thank you for Daniel. This, this man was just awesome. It would have been incredible to know him, to watch his life. He was just so convinced that you are exactly who you say you are. And he had such great faith. And you came through for him in so many affirming and confirming ways. Thank you for his life and his example. And I pray that we would emulate it in our lives as well. To be a rock like Daniel was. Unmovable, unshakable faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.